If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In 1823, the enslaved people living on the sugar plantations of the British colony of Demerara, now Guyana, decided to launch an uprising. It's a story that Thomas Harding brings to life in his new book, White Debt, telling the tale through the eyes of four people involved, a slave owner, a white missionary, a leader of the uprising, and a member of the white militia that sought to quash it. I spoke to Thomas about the uprising and its far-reaching consequences. Your book recounts an uprising by enslaved people in the British colony of Demerara in 1823. So before we delve into what happened that year, what do we need to know about Demerara in the early 19th century? Because I think a lot of listeners might not even know where or what Demerara is. So when I started uh, looking at this story, I had no idea where Demerara was. I mean, I knew about the sugar, which I put Mm. in my tea sometimes. Uh, But it turns out that Demerara is the country now we call Guyana, which is in South America, the only English-speaking country in South America. It's just to the east of Venezuela, just the north of Brazil, and uh, its northern edge is on the Atlantic coast. Uh, And it considers itself part of the Caribbean, even though it's part of South America. And until the beginning of the 19th century, Demerara was disputed territory. So the French, the British, and the Dutch, they exchanged ownership of the colony. But by the time we get to the 1820s, Britain is very much in control. It has been agreed that it is a British colony. And even though the law that governs the land is Dutch law, which is interesting, and it has consequences of itself, uh, it is very much part of the British Empire. Another important piece of context, I think, before we launch into the story is just about Uh, what was happening in terms of the slave trade and slavery at the time. So this uprising took place in 1823. Can you just put that for us on a timeline of in terms of the abolition of the slave trade? Absolutely. So the story is centred in 1823 when there is this uprising in Demerara. But this is after the abolition of the slave trade. So in 1807, slave trade was abolished in the British Parliament. And this is, I mean, this is what I knew. I, this When I was growing up, I knew about the triangular trade. I was told that Britain abolished slavery. Uh, we're the great emancipators. You know, when I was at school, I was never taught about, you know, the British Caribbean and how slavery continued. 
uh, amazingly enough, after 1807. And it wasn't until 1833, uh, so more than two decades later, that the British Parliament passed the second act, which was to abolish slavery entirely in the British Empire. And that then came into force the following year, August 1834. So, in that intervening period, slavery not only continued, but the slave trade continued between colonies. So enslaved men and women and children were still sold from uh, colonies, let's say, like Jamaica or Barbados, and they were transported to colonies like Demerara. Demerara was a relatively new British colony, and the productivity of the sugar plantations was, was, was so amazing, and it generated so much growth that uh, the value of enslaved people at auctions was considerably more than other colonies. So there was this, uh, uh, this continuation of this disgusting slave trade continued all the way, all the way through to the 1830s. So we will talk about the enslaved people's uprising in a moment, but I'm just intrigued because you said there is, like many people, you hadn't heard of Demerara, you weren't too familiar with the timeline of abolition. So what was your in to this story? How did you end up writing a book on this subject? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say I, I, I knew almost nothing about mm. slavery, uh, the Britain's role in the plantations in the Caribbean until I started this research. Uh, when I was growing up uh, at school, there was a very passing conversation about the triangular trade. Uh, the focus was very much on we, the British people, were the great abolitionists, how proud we are. And what started me on this story was my last book, Legacy, when I was writing about and, and learning about my mother's family. And I learned that they had a tobacco, a very large tobacco co company in the 19th century. And almost certainly they would have used tobacco from plantations worked by enslaved people in both America and Cuba. And so at least part of their wealth came from the slave system, slavery. And I was really shocked and ashamed. And I started looking into this slavery and Britain's role. And that led me to Demerara and the uprising of 1823. We will return to that contemporary legacy later in the interview. But as you say, to turn to Demerara in 1823, what can you tell us about life on in the colony for enslaved people in particular? So by the 1820s, there were about 90,000 people living in Demerara. Um, there was a European colonist population of about 2,000. There was the same number of mixed race people. There was a small number of indigenous people. We don't know how many, but the vast majority of the population were enslaved, around 70,000 people. Most of them, the majority, had been transported as captives from Africa in, in that generation. They weren't the descendants of people who had been transported. So they still remembered life in in Africa, which is important. And the again, the vast, vast majority worked on plantations along the North Atlantic coast of Demerara. Uh, most of them were now sugar plantations. Previously, there were cotton plantations, there was tobacco plantations. But with the enormous profits to be made from sugar by the mid-1820s, people loved their sugar in Europe, in their tea, in their coffee, uh, it was a it was a growing uh, consumer need. Uh, the the plantations were typically sugar, and these plantations were barbaric uh, because of how hard it was to grow and cultivate sugar, and then to process it on the plantations. They not only cultivated it uh, 
on the in the fields, but then they they cut it and then they they then uh, pressed the sugar canes, boiled the sugar, uh, and then and then um, transported the the sugar and then the molasses in these large large barrels called hogsheads. And because of the needs of the process, they had to do it very quickly. So often they would be working through the night, especially on the boiling houses. Uh, the conditions were horrific. Some people say life expectancy was as low as five years. Um, if you look at these registers, which are still available, if you go to the National Archives in Kew, you can see these large leather-bound volumes, red covers, with all the names. I mean, when I saw those, I was, I was really shocked. And the story that I'm writing about is about this one plantation called Success, owned by the politician and trader John Gladstone. And you can see the names there of the individuals and uh, where they're from, how old they are, what their jobs are. Some of them are field hands, some are written down as house servants, some are uh, coopers, as in the case of one of the main characters of this story, Jack Gladstone. He made barrels and hogsheads. Uh, and you can see it there in black and white. And some, somehow seeing that on paper, I, I found extremely impactful. Um, it, was very, it was made real. You know, these, these were real people who, who endured horrific, horrific lives uh, at the hands of the white colonists. Most, and then they really were mostly, almost entirely white colonists. There were some exceptions. There were some mixed-raced uh, owners of the plantations and, and very few, but still there were cases of of black people who who um, owned uh, or had registered slaves in their names. So you tell the story through the eyes of four of these real characters, two of whom you just mentioned there. How did you choose these four people? And could you run us through mm. them? Yeah, so I write narrative nonfiction. So everything that I'm writing is true. So to try to tell the story from four people's point of views, it requires an enormous amount of data of original uh, material. And to do that, I need memoirs or I need letters. I need um, accounts that I can quote. Because what I'm really interested in is, for example, dialogue. Because dialogue really brings alive a story. And I'm extremely fortunate to have, as a, and this is one of the reasons I chose this story, to have the uh, court transcripts after the uprising, there were these multiple um, hearings, proceedings, uh, where the colonists prosecuted those who took part in the uprising. And what we have, and these are available in both the National Archive and other sources, uh, we have the court transcripts of both the witnesses um, used, as well as the prosecutors, the presidents, um, and we have other sources as well. We have newspaper articles. So I'm able to construct a three-dimensional record of what took place, uh, which I th hopefully brings the story alive, makes it rich. And, and it's quite rare, I think, to have a story told from the enslaved person's point of view. That was very important to me for obvious reasons. And these court transcripts allow that. So we have four characters. The main character is Jack Gladstone. Uh, he was a cooper. He made barrels and hogsheads on this plantation called Success in Demerara. Uh, then we, and he, he was the leader of the uprising. He was born in Demerara. Uh, he was in his 20s at the time of the uprising. His father, Kwamana, uh, and he belonged to the local church. And uh, his grandmother, Tonisen, was born in Africa, transported to Demerara. 
by the British. Uh, the second character is John Smith. He's uh, a very interesting character. He's a missionary. He's, he's, he's white from Britain. And he finds himself in this situation that he really doesn't like. And remarkably, we have his memoirs. He kept an a, a almost daily diary of what it was like for him and his wife, Jane, in Demerara. And unlike some diaries, it's much more than just notations. It's much more than just, I ate this, and this is what happened today. He actually expresses his views and his feelings. And there's an extraordinary record over the many years that he's in Demerara of how their lives change. Uh, so that's a remarkable asset to include. The third person we have is John Cheverley. He just turns up in Demerara really by happenstance. His family is quite poor in Britain. Uh, he's unemployed. He's desperate to make money. His father back in Britain has lost his farm. He's the eldest son, so he feels a responsibility to make money. And Demerara, he sees an opportunity like so many people from Britain. Uh, and he ends up working as a store clerk. And then later in the story, he he's conscripted or enlisted into the militia, which puts down the uprising. And again, extraordinarily, we have his memoir, which has survived. His family uh, kept it and transcribed it. And what is so wonderful for me as a writer from his story is you get to see his response to what happened, his emotional response and his alarm and his disgust in the end, at the brutal uh, uh, suppression of the uprising by the British militia. And it really was horrific. And the fourth person is John Gladstone. He is uh, the owner, in inverted commas, of the enslaved people. He's the largest owner of, of slaves in the colony. He has multiple plantations. He is the father of the future Prime Minister, William Gladstone. And he's also on the lead voices of the West Indian Association in Britain, which is the association of traders and importers of commodities from West Indies. So he's, he has very uh, much a political role back in Britain. And he was at the center of the fight in Britain to stop the abolition of slavery. And we have letters, we have uh, various biographies written um, about John Gladstone. Uh, we have his speeches in Parliament. Uh, and also, uh, he got, gets him to this wonderful, for me again as a writer, this spat with this other uh, trader from Liverpool, which is recorded publicly in the newspapers. They have this public exchange of letters and opinions on slavery and the uprising. So again, a, a very useful record. And I think that those four characters, they offer you, don't they, a cross-section almost of the types of people that were involved in this event. So through their eyes, what do we see as some of the main factors that led to the uprising in Demerara? Well, of course, with four characters, we have four points of views. So they And they don't agree with each other, which makes it more interesting. I mean, Jack Gladstone, his motivation is to abolish slavery. And in the book, I actually I, I decided to call him an abolitionist, uh, enslaved abolitionist, because I thought that the, the word rebel or insurrectionist or even protester didn't feel uh, respectful for his agency, for his decision-making. And he very much was a, a man who, who was... Cons considered and um, intelligent and uh, wanted to um, bring about change in the colony, but in a non-violent way. That was very important to him. And for him, the, the, his, his, the, the key factors were 
the horrible conditions in the colony of slavery, the fact that he'd heard of other rebellions in the West Indies. They were very hooked into the network. They'd heard about the Haiti Revolution uh, about 20 years earlier. There was various other rebellions uh, in Jamaica, Barbados, other places even in uh, the, the new country of the United States of America. He'd heard about those as well. He, he would pick that up from newspapers, from his friends um, who worked in the governor's office or at the docks where he used to go and deliver hogsheads. So there was a clear ambition with with the uprising. It wasn't a kind of organic thing that just mutated. There was a plan, was there? Yeah, this is one of the interesting things. I, I, I assumed, or wrongly at the beginning when I started my research, it was kind of spontaneous. It was almost like a... Um, uh, an instinctual response. And it turns out, no, this was very considered, very planned. They held off launching the uh, uprising for many weeks, waiting to see if the governor would honour a letter which came from England, which told him to ameliorate to lessen the horrible conditions of slavery. And when it became totally obvious that that wasn't going to happen, that's when they pulled the trigger. And when they organized the rebellion. They had various meetings about it. It was clear from the very beginning to Jack Gladstone and the others that the only way to succeed was to have a rebellion or an uprising which took place across the colony. The British had a militia which would easily be able to suppress you know, a few people in one plantation uh, from uh, protesting. But to have something spread across the colony on multiple plantations would be much more difficult for the British militia to stop. And so that took a lot of organizing. It also took uh, a planning and, and organizing to make sure that it was nonviolent, to uh, decide on the tactics. The tactics were to seize the weapons from the plantation owners um, and to make sure that the militia and the white plantation owners didn't have access to those weapons. That took planning. It also took quite a lot of effort and coordination, uh, when when was this thing going to happen? To make sure it happened at the same time. And they used the the, the context. So they, there were bells in all the plantations. They would ring a bell, which would be heard on the next door uh, plantation, very much like the beacons, you know, when they lit the beacons in England to alarm people about invasion. This was the bells and the sound would go from one plantation to another and very quickly spread. So they were using the local context. Uh, they also decided to do it on Monday when people had at least some rest, hopefully on the Sunday before. Uh, and also any last minute changes could be uh, communicated because they would meet in churches across the colony. So they were very careful and smart, I think, and intelligent in their coordination. And, and you see that when the uprising unfolds in uh, how successful they are to quickly take over the colony and to follow the rules, which was nonviolence. One of your other characters, as you say, is John Smith, a missionary. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about the role of religion or preaching. Yeah. You spoke there about church communities in planning and perhaps inciting an uprising. Yeah, so the church had an ambiguous role in the colonies, uh, Largely, uh, the church were considered slaveholders. Many of the people across the Caribbean who owned slaves, um, in air quotes, you can't see me putting my air quotes up, um, uh, were members of the church. Uh, they were clergy or higher up. And you see that in the records of the registers of, of enslavement back in Britain. Uh, the church also across the Caribbean, uh, for the most part, saw themselves as upholders of the status quo, which was uh, the white British people having this slave society 
and very much saw their role as, again, in quotes, civilizing uh, the enslaved people. There were, however, some dissenters. And for the most part, these were people who were nonconformists. They were not part of the Anglican Church. Uh, Today, we might call them Baptists. And uh, they, the London Missionary Society, uh, was the home for many of these people who were anti-slavery. However, when John Smith was sent out to Demerara uh, in 1817, he was told on, in writing and verbally that he wasn't to cause any trouble, that his role there was to, to bring the Bible, to bring Christianity to the enslaved people of the colony, but not to upset any of the colonists, not to disrupt uh, what was going on. Uh, and when he arrived, he found this a huge conflict. And you see that in his in his diary. He is, he is incredibly upset by what he sees, what he hears. Um, he has day-to-day contact with the enslaved people. In fact, the, those are the people he has most contact with. Um, the deacons of his, of his church were enslaved men and women. The people who wrote, read the Bible stories were enslaved men and women. So he starts to communicate his um, uh, disapproval of this, very strong disapproval of the slave society, for example, by reading stories from the Bible. Uh, for example, uh, the story of Egypt, where uh, the Hebrews, the Jews, uh, are able to leave, uh, they organize to leave their enslavement in Pharaoh's Egypt. And he reads those kind of stories. And he subtly encourages them uh, to uh, resist the brutality. So, for example, when some of the neighboring plantation owners stop the enslaved people attending service on Sundays, John Smith fights that and encourages them to come, even if it means that they might experience punishment, whether that be whipping or being sent to jail. Uh, So he very much does that. However, at the start of the uprising, he's more ambivalent. So when he's he's asked, what does he think? At first, he tells Kwamana and Jack Gladstone, who were two of the ringleaders of the uprising, look, you should just wait and see. Wait to see what happens. Be patient. It was only after the uprising starts, and we hear this through court testimony, that he says, look, now you've started, you need to continue and finish it off. So uh, he was very much an opponent of slavery. Before the uprising, you could say that he was somebody who supported the enslaved people. During the uprising, his role was more ambivalent. However, when it came to his trial, the the powers that be, the plantation owners, very much saw him as an instigator and tried him as very much advocating supporting the uprising and then found him guilty and sentenced him to death. And so, he, so even though looking back in history, we think of him as slightly more ambiguous. And and I have to say, reading some of his diaries, there is certainly some racist uh, comments and uh, records that he leaves in there. Uh, so he's he, from a historical point of view, he's he's more complicated. But at the time, the planters saw him as very much as supporting the uprising and and punished him accordingly. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Those people in the Caribbean who who resisted enslavement, they 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 have been forgotten for so long. And they need to be remembered for their role, uh, which is why I think they should be also thought of as abolitionists. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. 
That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So as you recount in the book, the the uprising began on success plantation and it spread from there. What can you tell us about its progress and how how far it got? So the uprising started on success, which was about 20 miles east of the capital, Georgetown. Uh, These plantations, if you can imagine, they're they're very long, thin strips, so about a quarter of a mile wide, about three miles long. And so they're really um, close together. So news would, would would travel very quickly from one plantation to another. And people would know each other from one plantation to another. So, for example, John Smith's chapel, Bethel Chapel, people attended from many, many plantations because they were so crammed in together. When the uprising started, when Jack first rang his bell, uh, the news would have spread very quickly. And by the end of that night, more than 30 plantations were taking part. And uh, the the abolitionists, the people taking part in the abor- uh, um, uprising, were traveling away from Georgetown, away from the British militia. They were going east. Um, they would go from one plantation to another, picking up uh, more and more people. So that by the time they got to Bachelor's Adventure, a couple of days later, there was more than 4,000 people who were taking part in the uprising uh, in, one, in, in, in a group across the whole colony, you know, there was some disagreement about how many people actually took part in the uprising. The range is anywhere from ten to 15,000 people, which at the time was the largest slave uprising anywhere in the British Empire. So this was a very significant number of people who took part in the uprising. And uh, by the second day, the, the I think more than 30 plantations were under the control of the enslaved abolitionists and then in one spot, more than 4,000 people were gathered, and they came face-to-face with the British militia, who by that time had made it to Bachelor's Adventure. So how did the whole thing crumble? Why was it not successful? Ostensibly, the reason why it stopped was the British militia stopped it. So uh, every white person, white man who was in Demerara was obliged to take part in the British militia part of the suppression. Uh, martial law had been enacted very soon after the uprising 
had started the governor, sent flyers around the colony saying, you need to enlist with the British militia, uh, you need to, to join in. And there was a core professional uh, number of soldiers, but these were uh, in, uh, enlarged by the conscripts. And they went around from plantation to plantation, suppressing what was going on, taking control back of the plantations. And then there was this, this moment, it was, some people call it a battle, I would call it a massacre, at this one plantation called Bachelor's Adventure, where about two or 300 British militia lined up and faced off against about 4,000 of the enslaved abolitionists who had a, f- a handful of guns they'd seized, a, cu- a, f- a few, several cutlasses, but for the most part, they had handmade, homemade weapons. And again, Jack Gladstone, the leader of the uprising, had been very clear that no violence should be used. Um, I mean, not that they could really do much against the British militia. And after a parley where the uh, head of the British militia, Colonel Leahy, went out to talk to Jack Gladstone, and Jack Gladstone said, look, we want to have our freedom. We don't want to be working on the weekend. We want to uh, we want to be treated more fairly. And Colonel Leahy said, there's no way that's going to happen. And then he, he marched his men forward, and they're in very close proximity, and he then ordered them to start firing. And within 15 minutes, at least 200, if not more, uh, enslaved abolitionists had been killed. I mean, it was it was a massacre. It was a bloodbath. It was something, it was a real stain on British history as far as I'm concerned. Uh, it's appalling. And it's still remembered in Bachelor's Adventure. The, the, every year, they remember this uprising. Uh, they remember this particular, you know, massacre at Bachelor's Adventure. There's a monument mm-hmm. there. It, it was so terrible, and the, and the story is passed down the generations. And then after that, the militia went from plantation to plantation, uh, clearing the enslaved people, arresting them, and holding what could only be described as kangaroo courts. They, uh, after a, a few seconds of conversation, they would find an enslaved person guilty without any evidence or witnesses, and uh, they would line them up and shoot them. And again, a horrific, horrific uh, stain on British history. So that by the end of August 1823, so this is within a couple of weeks of of the start of the uprising, at least 500 people had been killed. Uh, After that, there were trials, court-martial trials, and at least 50 people were found guilty and hung. Uh, They were hanged in the, um, the... old parade ground in downtown Georgetown, the capital. And their heads were cut off and put on spikes and placed both in Georgetown at the en- and at the entrance of the plantations as a message to the enslaved people across the colony. Again, horrific, horrific scenes and something to feel really terrible about as a British person and, and to remember this. Uh, and I-, I went to the plantation. When I was in Georgetown, I went to this parade ground and we had a moment of remembering some of these people who died, some of these, I consider, extraordinarily brave people who'd stood up against enslavement uh, and and tried to remember what happened there. Well, that leads us on to the other aspect of your book. So woven throughout your account of the Demerara uprising, there's another thread which follows your own discovery of this story Mm. and your visits to Guyana to speak to people about their history and its legacy today. So how was that experience and what kind of perspectives on this aspect of British and Guyanese history did you get from going out there? So when I started this research, I was really, 
and I'm embarrassed to say, I, I really had no idea about sl British slavery, uh, uh, about Guyana, about uprisings. And so for me, this was really a, learn a, a huge learning curve. And I've had to, I had to go to Guyana uh, to, to, to go to the places that are mentioned in the records about the uprising, to, to walk the land, and most importantly, to meet people. Um, this history has been written about before, especially in Guyana, and I wanted to speak to people and learn from them, the historians who'd written about it. I was very lucky to meet some of the top historians in Guyana who were very generous and shared their research. Walking across some of these plantations, I was struck not only about how um, the history is still remembered in the names of the places, um, names of the streets. Uh, there are some memorials in in Georgetown. So, for example, what was Murray Street, that, which was the name of the governor at the time of the uprising, is now Kwamana Street, who was one of the leaders of the rebellion. Uh, some of the, as I said, some of the street names are uh, named after slaveholders, some of the neighborhoods of Guyana. But more importantly than that, the, 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 the legacy of the horror is still remembered. So every year there is a ceremony called Ma'afa, uh, which remembers the tens of thousands of enslaved people who were transported from Africa to Demerara. And I was very fortunate uh, to be invited when I was there to this ceremony, which I found extremely moving. The legacy of slavery was very much real in Guyana. And then when I came back to England and, and started talking to people, especially in the Black British community, it became very obvious that the legacy of slavery is still very much felt um, in British society. Uh, and whether and, I, and this is what I was told, whether it's in the, the inequalities today in society, in the higher arrest rates, in the you know, women are five times more likely to die in childbirth if you're black than if you're white in Britain, you know, whether it's in outcomes, in education, in employment, these legacies um, are still felt today. And it's such an important history to to talk about and to remember. Um, and it's, it's not just black history, it's very much, it's white history, it's our history, it's everybody's history in Britain, because the people of Britain benefit enormously from the wealth which came over from enslavement for hundreds of years. That, well, the title of your book is White Debt. And I wonder if you could explain the meaning behind that title. Yeah, so, I mean, at the time of slavery, the vast, vast majority of people who uh, were involved with and ran the slave societies were white. So the people who, who uh, owned the ships, who manned the ships, which transported the enslaved people from Africa, the vast, vast majority of people who owned the plantations, who worked in the plantations, or oversaw the supervisors, the managers, were white in the plantation. The, the vast majority of people who were involved with transporting the commodities, the, co the cotton, the tobacco, the sugar, back to Britain, including my family, uh, were white, again, were white. Uh, not to say the people who benefited of all the wealth and enjoyed the commodities back in Britain were white. And of course, at the center of enslavement is racism. You know, people were enslaved on the basis of their color. That's not to say there weren't um, countries in Africa, people in Africa, uh, black, black Africans who were involved. Of course, there were. And uh, countries, for example, like Ghana, uh, the president of Ghana, um, have apologized for their role in slavery. Again, there were some very few um, mixed race and uh, people of African descent who were involved with the <coughs> transport and then the plantations themselves. Uh, but again, this is a very, very small number of people. The vast majority of those who benefited and worked in the slave society were white. And 
I think that's important to say that. I'm, I'm, I mean, when I when I when I first started writing this book, I was very uncomfortable having this conversation, if I'm honest. But now I I realised that it's very it is important to 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 say what it was because it's still important today. You know that white people have a special responsibility, a, a, a debt uh, for what happened. That's not to say that, that white people are the only people who are responsible, have a, a special responsibility. Of course not. Um, but in the same way, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, we're not saying that everybody else's life doesn't matter. We're saying that we should pay special attention to black people, uh, given uh, the inequalities that exist in society. In the same way, white people have a special responsibility when it comes to enslavement. I believe that white people have a debt uh, to pay. And if we're to go beyond metaphors when talking about a debt to pay, what to you would that mean in real world terms? Yeah, yeah. So practically, I mean, there's different aspects of that. There's, it's very important to acknowledge what happened. And this is what I'm told. It's very important to say, you know, Britain's and uh, talk describe Britain's role in slavery, but we need to go further than that. Uh, uh, acknowledgement's not enough, you know. An apology, um, recognition, regret—these things are also important. Uh, but again, that's not enough. There needs to be something more substantial to that. And now, now we're talking about reparations. We're talking, and that can take many forms. It could be cultural reparations. It could be changing the way that we talk about history or teach history in schools. Um, it can be talking about. Um, returning artifacts that have been stolen, uh, whether it be from Africa or other countries. Um, and indeed, it could be talked about money. And um, people, when, when, I, when I was in Guyana, it was very clear that that was very much at the center of what they're expecting. And many, there have been some very, very smart people who've looked at this, and they've looked at it much more than I have. Um, CARICOM, which is the community, the Caribbean community, they have a 10-point plan that they've published about what that might look like. You know, that might include forgiving of debt, or it might be transferring of funds, or it might be a, uh, transferring of technology. You know, there's different ways of looking at it. And this can happen at many levels, is what I learned. It can happen at the government level, but it can also happen at the corporate level, you know, where the corporate, some corporations who's, who exist today, um, who directly benefited from slavery, and some of them have come out now, whether it's Lloyds of London, uh, Bank, Bank of England have talked about this. Uh, University of Glasgow have made a commitment uh, to transfer £20 million because they've acknowledged that their organisation benefited from money donations that were given by people who made their money from slavery. Uh, and But it also can work at the family level, and that's something that my family has begun to look at. And it led to some you know, intense but really interesting conversations. One of the biggest questions that's always raised about reparations um, is that people would say, why should people today pay for the crimes mm. of their ancestors? So what would your response to that be? Yeah, so I asked that. I asked that of many people. And uh, first of all, I should say that, you know, my <clears throat> father's family, uh, we are German Jewish and we were forced to flee Germany uh, because of the rise of the Nazis. We lost uh, people in the Holocaust. And I have personally received money from the German government. You know, you'd call that reparations, maybe, you know. And if I'm receiving money in that situation, I can't see why people who are descended uh, from those who are enslaved by the British wouldn't also similarly. The question then is, how does it work? And, and that, that is, is difficult, you know, who pays, 
how much, who gets it. You know, these are these are definitely pro- problems, but the, these are details as far as I'm concerned. You know, the principle is is at stake here, and uh, you know we've seen reparations play out in other countries. This, the Americans they paid uh, members of the Japanese families who were um, incarcerated, um, and it's happened in in other countries as well. So I, I think there is a principle which exists. The question then is, how does it, how does it look like? And, and one question which people ask is, you know, well, what about recent arrivals? What about people who have only just come to Britain? And the answer really is, as a whole, people in Britain have benefited from slavery. You know, HMRC, the, the, the tax department put out a tweet only a few years ago, I think it was 2015, saying that they were only just paying off the, the, uh, the debt mm. that they had to take on. Uh, to pay off all those people who had owned enslaved people, who had been compensated um, when slavery was abolished. Uh, So we have literally been paying this money off until recently as a society. So it's still very much a a present concern. And as a society, we need to address, you know, the debt that is owed um, from this horrific, horrific slave society uh, that we ran for, I and mean, this was for hundreds of years. This wasn't just for a couple of years. This was for hundreds of years, uh, and this is something that we have to really stand up for. I think. Mm-hmm. So the uprising, it may not have achieved what it intended to in eighteen twenty three, but what mm. would you see to be its impact and its legacy? Why was it such a significant moment? Looking at the newspapers, looking at the the letters from the eighteen twenties, looking at the historical accounts, the anti-slavery movement in Britain was really in the doldrums when it, in the early 1820s. It, it hit a high point around 1807 when the abolition of the slave trade took place. But after that, it would really it lost its momentum. And then what happened was news of the uprising in Demerara hit Britain and the huge controversy of what had taken place, particularly the trial of John Smith, this white missionary, and then hearing the accounts of the horrific and brutal treatment of the enslaved people. And this conversation was taking place not just in Parliament, where there was a two-day debate, but also across the country um, in the newspaper articles where the trials were um, reprinted verbatim, page after page, but also in town meetings, um, hundreds of thousands of, of people signed petitions calling for the abolition of, tra- of slavery. So the Demerara uprising really re-energized the anti-slavery movement so that by the time you got into the, into the mid-1820s, um, it was really a force to be reckoned with. And it was almost inevitable um, that the abolition um, took place. And then there was this very um, intense conversation about how to make it happen. And it was decided there was this big compromise that was made that those who, who inverted commas, owned the slaves would be compensated for their assets that they were lost. And, and, and that was this huge compromise that was made. And so by 1834, um, the abolition of slavery bill was um, enacted, was in force. And on the one hand, hundreds of thousands, I think it was more than 600,000 slave people across, across the British Empire were emancipated. And on the other side of that, uh, more than 60,000 people who had registered an interest in owning slaves were compensated for that financial loss. Now, for the enslaved people, freedom wasn't immediate. Many of them had to serve apprenticeships for many years. And even then, uh, people would say that the, the conditions were remained exploitative. 
the whole new economy of indentorship arrived in the Caribbean, brought in, may I say, by this guy, John Gladstone, the same character we talked about earlier. You know, so things didn't dramatically um, improve immediately. This was uh, the first major step towards freedom. And Demerara, the Demerara uprising is seen as one of the main triggers of that. There are other uprisings in other colonies. Uh, Jamaica, for example, was was an important one. Uh, but the uprising Demerara was very much p- at the center of this shift uh, in fortunes uh, for the enslaved people in the Caribbean. And the abolitionists in Demerara need to be remembered for their role in that. Those people in the Caribbean who who resisted enslavement, they, they, they have been forgotten for so long and they need to be remembered for their role, uh, which is why I think they should be also thought of as abolitionists. That was Thomas Harding. His book is White Debt, The Demerara Uprising and Britain's Legacy of Slavery. That's published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. You can find a link in the show notes. I spoke to Thomas for the January issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes features on Queen Victoria's spies, British treason trials, Britain in 1921, and a schoolboy prisoner in communist China. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.